I thanked uh, Pastor Tim for uh, giving me competition in the pulpit. And I meant it. Thank you to the worship team uh, for your ministry to this church and uh, your growth in that. And uh, man, oh man. Oh. I knew the story of uh, that individual and uh, just to hear it like that and to sing it like that together and to think about what the Lord has done for us and what we talked about last week and then to go into the confession and what we receive every Sunday in this church through that table, the empowerment that comes through Christ's body, uh, that empowerment that uh, gives us the ability or helps us in our ability to live for Christ and then also uh, that constant forgiveness and cleansing that comes through his blood. And uh, we, uh, we follow that up every Sunday with hearing from our Lord through the preaching of his word, which also uh, does its own work in cleansing and in empowering us. And so uh, we're going to continue that now through continuing the series that we started uh, last week, which is uh, Spy the Lie, Spy the Lie. This is part two. If you do not have a handout, raise your hand. Anyone need? Got a few people up here. While we're waiting for them, let me <clears throat> go a little off course here and uh, give you some verses to think about as it relates to what we prayed for uh, for baby K. Isaiah 48. <clears throat> Isaiah 48. I have counseled <clears throat> Pastor Tim and uh, Carrie to to read their Bibles out loud so the baby can hear. And we know science uh, teaches us that babies are able to hear things while they're in the womb. And so I have counseled them to, to read the scripture aloud so that the baby can, uh, can hear that and be able to feed on that. We know that because of the promise that God gives uh, to his uh, covenant people as it relates to their children, which uh, Peter repeats in Acts 2.39, uh, the promise that uh, our children are his children at conception, uh, that those children are born with uh, souls that have been cleansed. And so uh, they are also uh, souls that are filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet just like us, they have a responsibility uh, to maintain what it is that they have so graciously gained, and they're doing that uh, even now as they're growing uh, in the womb. And passages like Isaiah 48, verse 8, uh, reveal that to us, that babies... Uh, uh, even while in the womb, are making certain decisions. Of course, not to the degree or level that we are now, but nonetheless, they are making certain moral decisions. And uh, God is assessing them based on those uh, decisions or those intentions uh, that are in their souls even now. Here in the negative, speaking of Jacob or Israel, 
God says at the end of verse 8, For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth, notice that, from before birth you were called a rebel. And so God sees the heart of that child and, and uh, sees what the intentions of that heart is and uh, how the soul of that small human being is, uh, is making decisions. What kind of decisions? Uh, rebellion or submission to God? And so uh, important to that again would be that child hearing God's word and being around uh, the people of God, being in that environment, just as uh, we need those things, that child uh, needs uh, those things. Interesting, uh, again, on the flip side in relation to this, 1 Kings 14, 1 Kings 14 also uh, speaks to what takes place in a, in a small child's heart that uh, may be something undetectable to us, uh, but is not again to God. Isaiah, or excuse me, 1 Kings 14, verse 13. Let me give you a little of the context here. Jeroboam was a, was a wicked king uh, over those uh, northern tribes that became known as uh, Israel after the split, uh, after the split, uh, in uh, Israel, between Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Uh, he was uh, one of the uh, many evil kings that presided over those, uh, those tribes in the north. And uh, God, uh, because of his wickedness, promised that uh, his progeny, uh, his children would all uh, die. And as a part of that, uh, God said, "None of them will, uh, none of them will be buried. Uh, they're so wicked, or you're so wicked, uh, as part of my curse against you. Uh, I will not even allow their bodies uh, to receive an honorable uh, burial." Verse eleven: Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat; and anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. So that's the context. Well, within this particular context, uh, we are told that Jeroboam's wife uh, has a child, and we don't know uh, the age specifically of this child, but this child uh, we do know to be uh, very young. And again, we don't know how young, but, uh, but a baby or possibly still even in the womb. And the main point is, is that this baby is uh, sick and uh, she goes to the prophet to, uh, to discern uh, what will happen to this child, if this child will, will live or, or if this child will die. And uh, that's where she hears uh, this particular prophecy over all of Jeroboam's uh, progeny or children. Uh, but notice uh, verse, uh, verse 13 and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. Notice verse 12. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. Something different here. 
rather than uh, he being like those mentioned in verse 11 in relation to this particular baby, he will receive a burial for he only, notice, of Jeroboam shall come to the grave because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel. And so something in that child, again, probably uh, undetectable to uh, his mother, nonetheless, God saw something there, something that was pleasing to him. And because of that, uh, this child is afforded uh, a burial. And so again, all of that just to say that God does see and that it does matter and we should be concerned about those things. On the positive side, we have examples like John the Baptist, who, uh, according to Luke 1, uh, was able to even uh, fill his mother with the Holy Spirit because of what was inside of him. And when he heard the news of Jesus, it says that uh, he kicked his mother. Literally is uh, what it says in the text. It says leaps in the text, but it means that he you know, kicked her. Uh, but it was a good kick, right? He was excited, <laughs> because of the news that he heard. And so uh, babies are making choices. Even now, that baby that is in Carrie's womb is making choices, and we want to pray for that baby, and we want to uh, encourage that that baby be fed God's word, and, and that that baby, like John the Baptist, would, uh, would leap and kick around inside of her uh, when it is in the presence of righteousness. And so... Uh, all of that, as I said, just kind of a, a, an aside. Uh, we're going to talk about something uh, else here this morning. So in preparation for that, let's go ahead and ask the Lord's blessing, shall we? Father, thank you that <clears throat> you are a, a good, a very, 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 very good and merciful God to us. Uh, your covenant love, your steadfast love for your people, it abounds. We are thankful for that. We are thankful that uh, you give to us not just children, but children who are also loved by you, who are in covenant with you. I pray that we would never take that for granted, that we would raise those children to your glory, that we would feed them your word, that we would lead them in righteousness. Lord, now as we again open your word and uh, we talk about some other things, things that we need to be aware of that are going on in the spiritual realm, uh, things that do affect us, negative things. I pray that we would take it to heart, that it would cause us to be more vigilant and watching spiritually as it relates to our souls. And that we would be all the more uh, eager to, uh, to move in the direction of righteousness and to seek only those things. Make it so we pray. In Jesus our King's name. Amen. Well, if you will, direct your eyes to the top of the handout there. Safely navigating our souls to the shores of heaven. We're all the masters of our own ships the author of our own stories. And so 
Uh, we're the one making the decisions as it relates to where we end up, heaven or hell. The safety of that, that navigation that we do, requires, as part of it, we spy the lies, that we're able to identify those lies, either internally or externally, that can lead to our shipwreck, spiritual shipwreck. Paul speaks of it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 1. That we spy the lies that lead to shipwreck, and the truth those lies often conceal. And so that's what we began talking about last week with uh, the first of these, this first lie. You don't have what it takes to live for God and get to heaven. You don't have what it takes to live for God and get to heaven. And as we saw during our time, that's just not true. Uh, summarizing what it is that we have. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3 that his divine power, which uh, was just a, as I said, summary way of, of, of putting what we see elsewhere, which is both soul cleansing, a cleansing that comes through propitiation as well as empowerment that comes from the Holy Spirit. Through that divine power, we have everything we need for life and godliness. Everything that we need. Let me just add something to that, something that uh, we talked about in the uh, Covenant Life group that I attended this week, and that is <clears throat> as it relates uh, to our free wills and uh, why it is that, that God put us in the situation that we're in. And that situation is this life as a test. Why didn't God, in other words, just... Uh, make us all immutable or unable to sin. Yes, we've been equipped, and uh, yes, we can do it, and so we are without excuse, and all the more so because of those uh, extra added benefits we've been given uh, under the new covenant. By, uh, but why did God do it that way? Why didn't he just uh, all make us uh, righteous and immutable or unable to change uh, in that particular uh, state? Well, here's the reason why, and this is what we talked about, because free will requires a test to determine sincerity. Free will requires a test to determine sincerity. If we were uh, immutable now in that state, unable, in other words, to sin, unable to make choices contrary to our nature, uh, then there would be no way for God to know. And this takes nothing away from his uh, omniscience. It just means that uh, God in what he knows is consistent with the definition of free will. Uh, we talked about this uh, in relation to God in the future. Uh, free will means that we are indeed free to choose contrary to nature or contrary to uh, internal or external stimuli. And so for God to know who it is that truly loves him, who it is that's truly loyal to him, the only way to do that is to first provide a test. Because if we were immutable, uh, then that would mean that we're nothing more than robots. 
And at that point, God would have no way of knowing those who were loving him genuinely or sincerely and those that were just doing it because they didn't have a choice. And so, hence the reason for this life. Hence the reason for the creation of this test. So that when we do go to heaven... And we are now made immutable. Those of us who have uh, protected the gift that was given to us by Christ, who have uh, protected that uh, soul uh, that, uh, uh, whose corruption was cleansed or removed through the blood of Christ, we have protected that through righteousness. Those people who have not uh, allowed it to be uh, re-corrupted, which is what uh, Hebrews 6 is talking about when it says that for those who have fallen away, those who have re-corrupted that soul, uh, that Jesus cannot be re-crucified. One-time deal. And uh, once you corrupt it, that's, that's it, right? And uh, that's why uh, those people are declared apostate. There's nothing more that can be, do, uh, be done. But for those of us who have uh, loved Christ, we've been loyal to Christ, we've been faithful to do what he says, and we get to heaven, uh, God can now uh, take that uncorrupted soul, and uh, in heaven he can make that uncorrupted soul what he could not make here, and that is he can make us immutable in that state, and uh, keep heaven or the reboot, the new heavens and the new earth, uh, from becoming like this world. And uh, that is something that justice requires. Uh, Justice uh, requires uh, that we earn it. That immortality is now earned. It's for those who have, uh, as Jesus said, uh, been considered worthy for such things. And why again are we worthy? Because uh, we've shown in genuineness, through sincerity, that we love Christ, that we'll be loyal to Christ no matter what comes. We'll be loyal to him and we've uh, we've protected the treasure that's been given to us. And uh, this uh, changing of our wills or our souls uh, over to that which is now immutable, meaning that we can never go back in the direction of sin, is uh, uh, what Revelation 21, or excuse me, 22, uh, is speaking about there at the end after we're given uh, uh, some idea of what Uh, the reboot will look like in chapters uh, 21 and 22. uh, We are told uh, in uh, verse, uh, let me find it here, in verse 11. Notice what it says. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. And uh, this is the way that he, he wraps up what he's telling us, or what it is that John receives as this vision of the reboot, the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, This is that final piece, and uh, it's the piece speaking to what I've just spoken about. And that is God uh, sealing us uh, in uh, that state that we departed this life in. 
And so if you uh, corrupted your soul or you were just uh, corrupt and never were uh, cleansed, you were evil, uh, you will be uh, permanently, even on that side, on the negative side, you will be made uh, mutable in that state. Let the evildoer, meaning from uh, your past life here in the test, still do evil. Those who are in hell will never repent because they are now uh, immutable, stuck in that state, continuing to uh, be filthy. They will still be filthy. And for the righteous, those of us who uh, stayed the course and fought the good fight, uh, those of us who uh, departed from this life as righteous, uh, we will remain so forever. We will still be righteous. Let them still uh, be righteous. So again, verse, or excuse me, point number one, the lie is, is that we, uh, that we can't do it, we can do it, and the reason that we need to do it is to prove our sincerity that we are indeed a people who do love God. And why would God want to know that? Well, I guess maybe the best way to answer that is by asking another question. Why would God want to have in heaven people who don't love him? Would you? And so the only way, again, to know that is to provide the test now by giving to us uh, in that free will state uh, mutable souls, souls that uh, are able uh, to uh, choose against God rather than uh, for God. And uh, hopefully that helps you uh, even as it relates to some of these larger questions. Why, right? Why this life? What's the purpose of it? Why didn't God, again, as I said, just start with uh, the immutable phase? Why did we have to go through this? And hopefully that helps you to better appreciate why, why we're here and why God's doing uh, what he's doing. Free will requires a test. It requires a test. If God's to know, uh, this is the only way he can know. That brings us then to the second lie that we need to spy or identify. And that is this. The devil poses no threat to the Christian. The devil poses no threat to the Christian. He is only concerned with kids from Hawkins, Indiana, living in the 80s. For those of you who are fans of Stranger Things. Per a 2020 Barna report, most American Christians no longer believe in Satan or the devil. That's just a fairy tale that uh, was used in olden times to scare people. There is no devil. He doesn't exist. Well, that's what he would uh, like you to believe that uh, not only does he not pose a threat to the Christian, but he doesn't even exist. Well, the truth is, he does exist. He does exist. We've talked about his uh, history before as uh, God's first high priest. We learn that from places like Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 and even from some of the information that we're given in Genesis 3, he was the bedazzled cherub 
God's finest, and he rebelled. And uh, this uh, cherub that we refer to as the devil, that term just means adversary, hunts Christians like a hungry lion. He hunts Christians like a hungry lion. First Peter 5.8, the text, you should be familiar with it. Here's what we're told. Be sober-minded. Sober-minded, that's a, <clears throat> a good word. Not one that we use so much today, but nonetheless a good word. Sober-minded, it means that be serious in your thinking. And uh, why I say it's a, a good word is because what it really means is, is uh, be realistic in your thinking. Which means that uh, what uh, Peter is about to tell us, he doesn't view as a fantasy or a fairy tale. He's saying what I'm going to tell you and what you need to think about is reality. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And uh, most likely what is meant there by <clears throat> roaring is that uh, he is a hungry lion. This is what is uh, causing all the commotion. He is hungry. And uh, he is looking for Christians to devour Peter's analogy of the hungry lion is no doubt meant to convey something also about those that are his prey. Think about lions in, uh, in the jungle or in Africa. You've probably watched a program or so or seen videos. And... Uh, Lions, like most predators, they seek a certain kind of prey. And I'm not speaking about the things they eat, but within that particular category, there are certain things that they're looking for. And uh, those things are three things, the weak, the isolated, and the foolish. And again, if you've ever watched any of those uh, programs where they show the lions, they're watching a particular herd, and uh, they're looking for those that are weak. And usually how they, uh, they know that is because this is the one that can't keep up with the rest of the herd. Or they can tell just uh, by looking at them that the, they're sick in some way. And I believe that that is uh, why Peter uses this particular analogy. Because the same is true as it relates to our herd, this body, he's looking for those that are weak. Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Here really giving us a definition of the weak. You may think that you're Strong, but 
When adversity, when the trials come, if that's uh, when you fall apart, you are the weak. You are the weak. Your strength is small, and so you are among the devil's prey. He realizes, uh, like the lion, that you're the easy kill. You're the one that he has the most potential of getting a hold of. The isolated. Another passage you should be familiar with. Proverbs 18.1 Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Why does uh, the writer here say that uh, isolation... uh, causes you to be one who breaks out against all sound judgment? Well, because it's not very safe to isolate yourself spiritually, to keep things to yourself, to not be transparent with your brothers and sisters. When you do that, when you isolate yourself again, you make yourself easy prey, an easy target for the devil who exists. And again, we're uh, we're on his menu. As a matter of fact, we're his... uh, were her, his preferred, his preferred uh, prey. The foolish, again, also on the list. You see this in the wild, often uh, in the form of those who are young, who uh, stray too far from the den or whatever it is from the pack. And uh, as a result, they are exposed to the predators. Verses uh, 22 and 23, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare them, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. He's a fool. His great folly leads him astray. He's ensnared by it, held fast in the cords of sin because of it. He becomes the wicked because of it. Notice there, he dies for lack of discipline. You don't want to read your Bible, so you don't. You don't spend time or use uh, your discretionary loyalties in a way that uh, will not only advance God's kingdom, but will advance you spiritually. Well, you're that person. You're that Proverbs 5 person. And uh, the devil loves it when you live your life that way. He loves it. He's watching you. Uh, he, by the way, has uh, no, uh, no problem with devouring children. He doesn't think the children in our church are cute. As a matter of fact, I'm sure he's uh, probably pretty happy that we as uh, believers are able to have children because many times children uh, play the part of the fool. And uh, he loves that. As a matter of fact, the Jews believed for a very long time, and uh, it's actually, there's actually a place in Scripture that, uh, that actually mentions this. There's a particular demon, supposedly, among uh, the devil's cohort by the name of Lilith. And uh, this particular demon, the Jews were most wary of as it related to their children. 
because it was believed that this particular demon by the name of Lilith hunted children. And so, uh, and by the devil uh, here speaking, uh, Peter speaking of the devil prowling around, uh, what he means by that no doubt includes the rest of his cohort, the rest of the demons, those who fell with him. That third of the stars that Revelation 12 speaks of. They love children in all the wrong ways. They're hunting them. And again, most likely because uh, they tend to be among the foolish, those that think there is no real uh, danger. Number two there in the outline, the devil can tell who is vulnerable or compromising and demands that God give him access uh, to them or to us. The devil can tell. I don't know how. I mean, I'm using or just use the analogy from the lion or predators in the wild, but how exactly does he discern these things? I'm sure there's certain visual cues that he's able to watch and uh, Uh, Seeing that the devil has uh, been here since the beginning, he's uh, 6,000 years old. That's 6,000 years of time to be able to study human beings and the behavior of human beings. Hunters know all about this and appreciate this in hunting their particular prey, meaning human hunters, they They learn the behavior patterns of that particular animal that they are hunting. And as humans, we have only maybe 60, 70, 80 years. We get things, of course, passed down from our ancestors that help us in this regard, but the time is limited, or we have far less, or have had far less time to to study things like this. Again, Satan has had 6,000 years to pick up on the visual cues that tell him that we are vulnerable or compromising. There may be some uh, internal cues as well. You remember he is in another dimension. Uh, He is in the, the dimension that our souls even now exist in. We know this uh, from passages like Ephesians 2, where it speaks about uh, being seated in the heavenly places. So though our corporal forms, our three-dimensional forms, uh, reside in the third dimension, our souls, because they are uh, fourth-dimensional entities, they reside in that realm, which is uh, super-positioned over this third dimension. And uh, quantum physics actually uh, has uh, spoken to this, not from a spiritual standpoint, but that there is a uh, a superimposed or superpositioned dimension over top or in the same area. We share the same space, and so our souls uh, are in these uh, corporal forms, and yet at the same time, because uh, they exist and can only exist in that uh, fourth dimension, Uh, outside of the corporal form, that is their true home. Well, maybe uh, because of that, Satan is able to see, uh, he's able to see that, he's able to see our souls. And uh, this is uh, speculation, of course, I can't prove this, but 
Maybe what that looks like is he's looking out through the fourth dimension. It's like a light. He can see, as uh, I've told some of you, it's like the little gingerbread, uh, little gingerbread man inside the big gingerbread man, uh, the spiritual inside of the physical, and he sees that piece, and uh, he can tell, uh, based on how bright the light is of that particular soul, how close they are uh, to God. He can also see, and we're going to talk about this here in just a second, uh, whether or not we have an entourage with us of angels, because the Bible says that uh, those who are to inherit uh, eternal salvation, they have an entourage, they have bodyguards. And so he can see those things, and uh, if I'm right, he can also see when that light is uh, beginning to become diminished. And uh, he and uh, his cohort are probably waiting for that thing to go cold. Or black, and for that entourage at that point to leave so they can jump inside. He's watching, we know that at the very least. And again, we know that somehow he knows who is vulnerable or compromising. And as it relates to those individuals, he goes to God and demands or requests access to those individuals. To do them harm. The two examples, uh, Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13. Here's a question to think about. It will be part of your covenant life group questions. Why does God give him access? Because God does at times give him access. Zechariah 13, uh, excuse me, not 13, 3, sorry. Uh, Zechariah 3, Zechariah receives this as part of his vision. Then he showed me Joshua the priest standing before the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord being the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him, meaning to Uh, accused Joshua. Now, the interesting thing about this word accused is uh, probably a better translation is demanding access. Uh, The semantic range for this particular word uh, would allow for that. And I think based on the context here, that is uh, what he's doing. And we're going to see here in just a second another verse that would, uh, uh, would support that. We know also from Job that uh, Satan does request or demand access to individuals. He did it with uh, Job and his children. And uh, the reason why, we're given at least one clue in verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. There's, There's sin. Joshua probably represents Israel as a whole based on how God uh, responds uh, about Jerusalem. And so he being the high priest, he was representative of the people or the federal head over the people. And uh, God says, uh, they are a brand plucked from the fire, or are they not a brand? Uh, Which means that Satan is able to discern how far in the wrong direction they are uh, spiritually. 
because this, uh, this phrase, a brand uh, plucked from the fire, literally a burning stick. Are they not a burning stick? The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Israel rebuke you. Is not this Jerusalem, the people of Israel, a brand plucked from the fire, a burning stick? Meaning uh, they are burning, they are in trouble, uh, but they're not completely consumed. There is hope. And so Satan is coming and uh, he is saying, I want access to them. I want to devour them. I want to have at their flesh. And uh, the Lord says, they're not that far along yet to where I would give you such access. Uh, There is still something there. Going back to my speculation about the light in the soul, there's, there's still a flicker of something there. Something there. But again, uh, to be able to say that and to put it in the form of a rhetorical query here, uh, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? means that uh, what God is saying, Satan knows. Which means Satan's able to see that or discern that, just as God is able to see or discern that. Now, does that mean he, he like God, knows our intentions or thoughts? No. Uh, not internally, at least. Can he listen to things as we say things? Uh, I wouldn't see why not. But again, he, uh, he has the ability to see who is vulnerable. That's the point you don't want to miss. He can tell who's compromising. And uh, when that happens, he requests access to us. And as I said, we're going to get that on the... Uh, Uh, the list of questions for this week. I'm not going to give you the answer because I want you to think about that. Uh, But he does do it. So the question is, why does God allow access? And we're going to see that uh, God does indeed here in just a minute. God does give access to those people. Even though God knows where it's going to end up in most cases. Luke 22 is the other text. Uh, Here, in reference to uh, Peter, this is uh, during the Lord's Supper, so it's on the night before he was betrayed. Uh, He's just revealed that one of them will betray him, speaking, of course, about Judas and... uh, He says this to Peter, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. Now, what's interesting about that is that that you there is plural. So he speaks to Simon, and uh, this is one of those texts that helps us support the belief that Simon was essentially the leader among the uh, the apostles. He was their representative or federal head. And so he says, Simon, Satan demands to have all of you, not just Simon or Peter, but all of you, you being plural here. He's demanded access to you that he might sift you again, plural, like wheat. And so uh, Jesus is uh, letting them know 
There's compromise, and it's not just with Judas. There's fickleness there. There's weakness there. And uh, because that, uh, Satan is uh, making a request. He's making a request. Number three, the devil lives to make war against true Christians. The devil lives to make war against true Christians, those who know they must obey to be saved. We are his primary target, true Christians. We're his primary target. Revelation 12 tells us that. Which, by the way, you've heard this uh, before. We've read it in other places, but we're going to see it here as well. We are in a war. This test is a war. Light against darkness. Here, speaking of a different war, the war that uh, arose as a result of uh, Satan not being able to have or devour Jesus, which is what he attempted to do, which is what we're told in uh, verses uh, 1 through 6, when the woman Israel, speaking of Israel, gave birth to Messiah, to Christ. Uh, He attempted to devour Christ, but Christ, we know, was victorious. Our king was victorious. And uh, knowing then that uh, the war was lost, very much like what Hitler did, some of the fiercest fighting of World War II came after the Allies had landed, on the beaches of Normandy. Uh, He makes an assault, Satan and his angels, directly then on heaven. And we pick that up in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, the dragon being Satan or the devil. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, his king has come. For the accuser, of our, uh, the accuser of our brothers have been, has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And again, I believe the word there, the better word is, is uh, he demands access to them. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Notice that's how you beat him. We're going to see most specifically or specifically what that looks like, their testimony how they conquered by the blood of the Lamb. But notice there, it's because, first of all, they did not love their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea. Those who are still here, those Christians still on earth, woe to you, 
For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. As I said, he knew with what Jesus did in conquering him and sin and death, he knew he knew he had been defeated. And so he has come down to you, you on earth, in great wrath. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the, women, the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. They're speaking of Israel again. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Again, all of this uh, is uh, the term simino or signs. It's uh, symbolic language. But the earth came to help, to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. He is again unsuccessful in his attempts to destroy Israel. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Notice that. Make war on the rest of her offspring. Who are they? on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Notice it doesn't just say those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. True Christians are not just those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. They are also those who keep the commandments of God. And for those people, well, again, we are his primary target. We are his only And so uh, he lives to make war against us. Number four, every true Christian, those again who are living faithful to their king, will then experience suffering brought on by the devil. Will experience suffering. We might say that this is a negative of being a Christian, but it's ultimately a positive if we respond the right way because, again, it shows, as it says here, those who loved him or loved Christ even unto death or they did not love their lives more than they loved Christ, their king. And so uh, we have the opportunity and uh, we have the mandate to not only believe but to suffer for him and to do it in a way that shows our love for Christ, that we do indeed deserve to go to heaven. Uh, But understand, we will then be persecuted. We uh, will suffer. We will experience suffering that is brought on specifically by the devil. We are not immune devil does indeed pose a threat to Christians. Going back to that 1 Peter 5 text, prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, resist him, verse 9 says, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That last portion there, 
Peter says, the same kinds of suffering. So Satan, what is he saying here? That Satan will cause Christians to suffer. He can get to us. He will get to us. We are again his primary target. And I love the fact that Peter says here that this is being experienced by all those who are true Christians, by your brotherhood throughout the world, if they are true Christians, they too will suffer. And that includes insult and lies that are spoken against us by others who claim to be following God, but are instead following the devil. They're doing his bidding. We will suffer. And we need to accept that, beloved. We need to know that that's going to come. And we need to know that so that we can stand and be the kinds of people that we need to be, that we can be, that we've been equipped to be if we're going to get to heaven. Which means keeping our eye on that prize and not the prize of this life. Christians on the other hand, who seem to always lose focus, who forget about the heavenly prize, and instead keep playing around with sin, with the things of this world, can be possessed by the devil or one of his demons. You can. Who will convince them to betray King Jesus. A perfect example of this is uh, Judas, who is one of the apostles. A man who was uh, baptized into Christ. A man who uh, was a saved individual in covenant. And yet this man, because of his uh, playing around with sin, and his uh, Sins is two primary sins, according to what we know from the Gospels and also the beginning of the book of Acts. There were two primary things. One, he, was, uh, he loved money. Nobody loves money for money in and of itself, but what you can do with money. And so when we say somebody loves money, it means they love to get things. They love the possessions of this world. That was uh, one of his problems, we know. The other was that uh, he wanted power or a position of power. And uh, like Satan, he was uh, not happy with the place that God had given to him. He wanted more. And uh, though we don't know exactly uh, what that looks like. Uh, he was an apostle. That was a privileged uh, position to be in. Uh, nonetheless, he, he wanted something more. Maybe he was uh, jealous of Peter. Maybe it was an issue with Peter, uh, that Jesus had tapped Peter to be uh, the head of that particular group, and he didn't like that. He was jealous. He was uh, envious. And uh, he didn't repent of that. He kept that in his heart. And uh, he kept, as uh, we hear often today, uh, this is the thing I struggle with. He struggled with it. 
It's not a good thing, by the way. When you say that to me, and some of you know this, you say, I, I struggle with whatever it is, fill in the blank, and I'll stop you at that point and say, whoa, whoa, what do you mean you struggle with it? Don't uh, fool yourself with this idea that if you, if you uh, confess that uh, you have a problem with it, that somehow means you don't have a problem with it. You don't get a license to struggle with it. You either are by the Spirit, Romans 8, as we saw last week, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, and you will live or you will die. Over well, Judas, he continued to struggle, which means he continued to hold that in his heart. Jealousy, probably, for Peter. He didn't like that... Uh, uh, Jesus had raised him up and probably thought, hey, I'm a, I'm a lot smarter than that guy. He saw uh, the things I'm sure that Peter did and, uh, and said, look, you know, I should have been the guy. And the money issue, even there he took issue with Jesus. Uh, he was uh, not happy about uh, how the woman who takes that uh, vial of uh, expensive perfume and uh, anoints Jesus' feet with it. He didn't like that. He thought that was a poor use uh, of money. But that perfume could have been sold and uh, the money given to the poor, which we're told that uh, he had no such intentions. He wanted the money for himself and used to steal uh, from the money bag. Uh, but this was uh, Judas. And uh, at the Lord's uh, table, the place where uh, our table was established, we're told in John 13, in John 13, uh, verse, uh, verse 26, verse 26, uh, here Jesus identifying him, it is he, the one who will betray me, to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, then after he had taken the morsel, notice, Satan entered into him. An apostle who played around with sin, kept playing around with sin, was a fool that way. Thought, you know, no harm's going to come to me and uh, I can play around with this stuff in my head and uh, it'll never really go anywhere did. He had already made a deal prior to this with the uh, Jewish leaders to betray Jesus, and uh, he became vulnerable in that way. Again, if I'm right about the soul thing, it was at that point that the uh, entourage of those protecting him left. Those guardian angels in the flicker in his soul went dark. And Satan said, there's the opportunity. And he jumped into that black hole and he occupied that space and he made sure that before he left, he had driven him across the line so there was no way of him ever coming back. He made sure that he took him far enough, just far enough to push him into the place of apostasy, into betraying Jesus. And the way his life ends, we all know, was and hanging himself after Satan left him and he could again see clearly what he had done. He hanged himself. 
Same could be true for us. As a matter of fact, we've had it here at this church. We've seen it happen here in this church. People who, because they continued to play around with sin and uh, they wouldn't stop, though we begged them and told them what was going to happen, eventually they were taken across the line. And after crossing that line, they came to their senses and they realized where they were at and they begged to come back. But like Esau, though they sought it with tears, the soul's been corrupted, there's nothing that can be done. Satan's finished his work, and so he leaves that person alone. But again, he, he's the one that takes them there many times. He convinces them to betray King Jesus. He say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? What about the Helper? Psalm 37, or excuse me, 34.7 says the uh, The angel of the Lord, most likely speaking there, because anytime you find that the angel of the Lord, it's a reference to deity. Most likely they're speaking specifically about uh, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The angel of the Lord encamps about the righteous around them, around God's people. And so he's there with the entourage as well. Uh, Well, we're given warnings, at least two in Scripture, as it relates to uh, his place in us, helping us, guarding us, protecting us. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 19 gives the warning, uh, do not quench the Holy Spirit, which means that we can. Ephesians 4 verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And I believe that what Paul's talking about there is uh, the same as uh, what he talks about in 1 Thessalonians when he says quench. How do you do it? But you keep playing around with sin. Spirit leaves. Those big hulking angels that were around you at one time, guarding you. They leave. Now you're wide open. For the taking, ripe. For the picking. And those same angels who at one time guarded you, where there is a, uh, we might say, friend to you in that way. Those same angels are the ones, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, uh, who will again come back and be with you, but this time, not for the purpose of guarding you, they will come back and they will take you, your soul, and drag you to the pit of hell. You see, they're not loyal to you, they're loyal to the king. And that's where the king says, you need to go. Matthew 13, as I mentioned it, you'll see the reference there, verses 41 and 42. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom. Notice that. Where in this case they're doing the gathering is in his kingdom in the church. all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. Throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They will come back, but this time they will not be your friend. You've determined that. You have determined that change in them. 
Jesus, on this note, teaches that the devil will be successful in turning true Christians into tares or weeds or troublemakers in the church. And that comes from this text that I've just read from, this parable of the weeds or the tares. Starting in verse 36, Then he left the crowds and went into a house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. That took place uh, verses uh, prior to this, 24 through 30, where uh, he gives the parable, and they're saying, Okay, we want to know what each of the items in this particular parable represents. The weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man again here will come with his angels and will gather again out of his kingdom, the church. All causes of sin and lawbreakers, uh, those who commit lawlessness, anamion, from which we get antinomian from. All those who said, I refuse to obey. All those who are, uh, literally, all those who are troublemakers, all causes of sin. They're going to be in the body. Jesus is teaching that uh, Satan will be successful in turning some of us against us. They will become tares or weeds in the body. And uh, the way that they will be known is that their uh, lives uh, will be known or characterized by troublemaking and lawlessness. We've seen that. Just as they did under the old covenant with people like Korah. We've seen that. People who were at one time were true believers, true Christians in the kingdom. But because they kept listening to the lies Maybe they had problems also with authority, with not being the boss, like Satan, like Judas. And Satan is able to use that vulnerability to turn them. And they become the weeds among us. They become the troublemakers in the church. And here again, notice in the text, they're in the kingdom. Jesus says, this will be true. It's going to happen. The devil, by the way, is all about appearances. All about appearances. Maybe you don't know what that means. It means that uh, the way that... uh, he oftentimes convinces people is uh, by the way it looks. He's big into what the world uses to sell a piece of gum, right? You watch a commercial for a stick of gum and uh, they do everything they can to show you that uh, your life is absolutely incomplete without that piece of gum. And that the beautiful, smart, successful people of the world, they chew that particular brand of gum. 
And so if you don't, you'll never be that beautiful, successful person in the world. That's what we mean by, or I mean rather, by appearances. You make it look like something that uh, you can't live without, and it's uh, something that's good. You need it in your life. How can uh, this which is so good or that feels so right, as the song says, be so wrong? Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians. This is part of his marketing strategy. True of marketing. You never get a, don't ever get a degree in marketing. If you do, you won't have a job because marketing is run by the devil. All about appearances. Let's find a way to sell you something that you don't need. Because we've manipulated you through appearance to make you believe that you do need it. Notice verse 14, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Here Paul's speaking about false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as the apostles of Christ. By the way, that was a joke with the marketing. If you're in marketing, I meant no disrespect. But appearances, right? We see it in marketing. Make it look like something that maybe it's not. And uh, Paul says here, this is uh, what was happening with these false apostles, these uh, deceitful workmen disguising themselves. Uh, No wonder, he says, for even Satan does this. An angel of light. He's all about appearances. He's he's not going to come and say, hey, look, I'm the devil. I mean to destroy you. No, he comes uh, looking like something else. But here's the thing, it's, uh, it never lines up with the facts. Hence the reason that Jesus can say in John seven twenty four, stop judging according to appearances, judge with right judgment. Stop judging according to appearances. Devil's all about that, and uh, if that's the way you're making decisions in life, especially as it relates to what's right and what's wrong, well, they seem like the good guys. They seem like the right one, rather than the facts, which in this case means going to God's word. All of it, not part of it. That was a part of uh, Satan's uh, disguise. You remember with Jesus in the garden, or excuse me, in the uh, wilderness, uh, he quoted scripture. And he attempted to use that against Jesus or to convince Jesus that uh, he could or should do things that would betray God. And how he did that was by removing those particular uh, verses from their larger context. Well, people can do that too. Uh, Even demons quote scripture. Even false Christians quote scripture. But it's all appearances. It's what they're not saying that's the most deadly piece. It's the part that they're leaving out, the part you don't know, the part that they're missing in relation to Scripture. The two things then that make you weak, isolated, and foolish are easy prey of the devil. The two things that make you the easy prey, all of those things, weak, isolated, and foolish that we talked about. James chapter 4 speaks to this, the two things There are two things that he tells us in this verse to remedy, which means uh, these are the things that uh, equally so then make us uh, vulnerable or weak or isolated or foolish. 
Verses 7 and 8, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, similar to what we saw in 1 Peter 5. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do we do that? How do we submit? How do we resist? How do we get the devil to flee? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There it is. Two things. The first, selfish living or tolerance for wickedness. Selfish living or tolerance for wickedness. That's what he's getting at there by that uh, command. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Hands in ancient society were a, a metaphor for power or authority or control or decision-making. Hence the reason we see oftentimes in reference to kings or even as it relates to Jesus, come and sit at my right hand or that Jesus sits at the right hand of God. It means he is the one controlling things or making decisions, the one with power to make the decisions. So the idea of cleansing your hands meaning it means cleanse your decisions, what you do, your actions, the choices that you're making, where you're spending your time and your money, your practice in life. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. The devil loves to entice us to selfishness and the tolerance of wicked or worldly things. Tolerance is a, a part of that. That too can be picked up by this word cleanse. It's a unique word there. In the sense of cleansing our hands, we have also this idea of holiness because uh, holiness is the, the idea that is attached to this idea of cleansing. We see this in the temple. It's a word that is uh, most often relegated to the temple or to uh, the priestly function of atonement. And so there you have also this idea then of holiness, which means intolerance for evil or wickedness. Maybe it's the TV shows that you allow yourself or family to watch. Maybe it's the music that you allow yourself or your family to listen to. This would uh, no doubt fit into this category, this prescription, and the devil loves, again, to use these things to entice us to selfish living or living for self to sinful living we see this in this chapter going up to verse 13 of chapter 3 who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct here speaking of practice let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition there's the selfishness piece in your hearts do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Pregnant phrase, right? Uh, what does it mean? You're a person the, whose ultimate agenda every day is self. What can I get? What can I do? What can I experience? It's not about Christ. Christ. Uh, if truth be told in your life, is a nuisance. I've got to read my Bible. I've got to do these spiritual things, otherwise I'll be in trouble, both with God and men, and I don't want that, and so I do these things, but it's still about me. Well, when you do that, beloved, you, again, you open yourself up. You make yourself easy prey to the devil, hence the reason James 
includes this as the prescription for resisting him. If you want him to flee, then this needs to stop. The second is unresolved doubt or unbelief. So selfish living or tolerance for wickedness. And secondly, unresolved doubt or unbelief. I'm picking that up in that uh, second part of the prescription. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. A double-minded person is a person who doubts. This would go back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago under belief loyalty. Belief loyalty. You're double-minded. You're not loyal to your beliefs. Hence the reason in 1 Peter 5.9, that text that we read earlier, resist him firm in your faith. Not listening to the world and the lies of the world, but firm in your faith. Feeding your beliefs through God's word and others who also believe God's word. Unresolved doubt is a dangerous thing. James is telling us that. He's uh, pulling back the curtain, if you will, and telling us uh, what is behind it, what is waiting for us. As God says to Cain, the sin that is crouching at your door, it is desire, its desire is to have you, to devour you, and you must master it. Double-mindedness. The devil loves to create or exacerbate this situation, doubt. He did it with David during wartime by making him, or ultimately, exacerbating David's doubt. He saw that it was there. He knew that he was vulnerable in that way. And so he exacerbated that situation or the doubt that he had in relation to his armies at the time of war. And so David goes out and counts those armies instead of trusting the Lord. His decision was not to be made on the number of his armies. At this point, uh, that's what he's doing. And again, all of that because of what Satan has done. We're told that. He loves to do that. The number one lie the devil devil uses to turn our doubt into damnation. The number one lie. Here it is. We have or should have the freedom to live according to how we feel without consequence. Freedom. This country is all about it, right? That's like the the, the number one buzzword. And again, you can really see here uh, this aspect of the devil being all about appearances because for most of us, uh, we, we, we believe that word to be a wonderful and good word. We support our country as they take uh, troops into other nations uh, to secure for them the freedoms that we have because we believe that that's what God wants. Those are our God-given inalienable rights to be free. And that the greatest sin on on the earth is the sin of somebody having uh, to do something they don't want to do or being punished for what they want to do. And Satan has, beloved, been breeding that lie since the beginning. You have free will and you should be able to exercise that free will whatever way you, you please. Think whatever you want about yourself or your sexual orientation or your sexual identity, whatever it is. Believe whatever you want, speak whatever way you want without consequences. How dare God give us a free will and then punish us for using it? 
That's not God. At least not a good God. Because we know who true God is. True God is freedom. Psalm 2. Break these shackles from us. Remove us from our bonds or our obligations to God. That's what it says. We want to be free to do what we want without consequence. And how does that psalm say that God responds? It says, the Lord laughs at them. And uh, we're left at that psalm with the warning, you better kiss the son or you will bear his wrath. You better understand that freedom is not the truth. God's given us freedom as a test. Freedom that is to be freely submitted, happily to the king. Kiss the king. I said that this is the lie that uh, Satan has uh, been soliciting since the beginning. I meant it, Genesis chapter 3. This is uh, how he caused the man and the woman, our first parents, to fall into sin. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's a freedom question, is it not? Or a violation of freedom. Put another way, did God actually say that you didn't have the freedom to choose which tree you eat of? Did he actually, did he go that far? How, how dare he do that? Tell you what to do with your life. Tell you what to do. This is the, uh, the abortion stuff, right? Tell you what to do with your body. Did he have the nerve to do that? Notice, did God actually say that? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God has said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Notice she starts with the positive there. As a matter of fact, everything she says is good. But she, she communicates it the right way by saying, no, it isn't like we haven't been given what we need. And, and more than just what we need, in abundance. God said by giving them those trees that they were to go and they were to flourish. You go back to Genesis 1, that through these things they would flourish. Only one tree was it that way. Notice then the tact or tactic of the serpent. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Again, the subject of freedom, the propaganda of freedom is what is being peddled here. Note the first part. Again, did God actually say you're not free to do what you want? And now hear the second piece, more deliberate. He forms it as a clear statement, you will surely not die. You have the freedom to do what you want and... There will be no consequences. You will surely not die. 
the serpent. Telling Adam and Eve that God is the liar. We all know what is good. We all know what is true. Freedom. And freedom without consequence. Know this instead that when you do this, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like him. Oh, you will be God. See, that's what God's trying to keep from you. You will be God. And Satan was right, by, uh, by the way, about that, knowing good and evil or choosing good and evil. Uh, you would, by this act, like Satan did, you will, by this act, declare yourself to be God. Yourself to be God. The number one lie, still peddling it today, I would say that uh, today it's become more popular than any other time in human history, even going back to what happened in Genesis 3. We have a world now that is convinced of this lie. And I would say America has been more to blame than any other country on the planet for soliciting this lie all the while claiming that we are a Christian nation. The lie that uh, everyone should be free. And by freedom, that means, again, uh, the freedom uh, to do what you want without consequence. This, by the way, I I told you, uh, I think it was uh, on Easter, about the individual who listened to the the demon named Iwas and uh, came up with the religion that uh, ended up becoming today what is formerly known as the religion of Satanism, this is their golden rule. Their golden rule is just this, a freedom without consequences. The pursuit then of holy living and seeking to resolve our doubt is therefore how we get the devil to flee from us rather than feasting on us. Feasting on us. This is also how we then draw near to God and submit ourselves to him. That brings us then to our conclusion. As I told you, there is a a lie to be spied and uh, there is a truth that it conceals and we want to identify what that is as well. Really, two things. Here is the truth that this lie conceals, this lie that uh, we are not at all vulnerable to Satan, his trickery, or even uh, his ability to cause us to suffer, the lie that he poses uh, no threat to the Christian. Well, here is the truth that that lie is attempting to cover up. Two points of wisdom. You don't go to the world to find your worth. You see, that's what Satan wants you to think. You've got Jesus, and uh, you can do whatever you want now. You can go to the world, and you can listen to the world. And everything will be okay because Satan can't touch you now. He wants you to believe that by believing that lie. And uh, we don't do that because we understand that uh, our worth is not determined by the world and that where the world is getting their advice from is from the devil who runs the world. 1 John 5.19 You don't go to the world to find your worth Some examples, success, 
I don't trust I can be successful unless I listen to the devil or the world's advice. Uh, this is, a, again, is an example. And you may say, well, that's not me, but uh, what is, uh, how are you operating? What is determining uh, for you how to be successful? How much of it is uh, being filtered through Scripture? I know you read and you uh, listen to podcasts or other things. Uh, have, you, have you been filtering that to make sure that what the world is telling you, and again, it all sounds good. The devil comes as an angel of light. It appears to be good, but maybe again, it's coming from the devil. What are you listening to? Counseling or therapy. I believe psychology knows best how to think, raise my kids, or run my marriage. We see a lot of people, uh, even in the uh, so-called church today, who uh, spend thousands and thousands of dollars going to psychiatrists and psychologists whose uh, the foundation of everything that they believe is satanic and wicked. Who are you listening to? Who knows best? What are the things that you're reading in that respect? The second truth that this lie conceals is that you don't go to the darkness to find the light. You don't go to the world to find your worth and you don't go to the darkness to find the light. Again, something that Christians are guilty of, I think in most part unaware but nonetheless guilty of it and uh, putting themselves in incredible uh, danger. They're going to the darkness to find the light. Let me give you an example. CAM, alternative medicine. I did a sermon on that. And uh, uh, many of uh, the different forms that are being practiced today uh, come uh, from things that are religious in nature. And so they are wicked. And they are filled with wickedness. And you say, but my back hurts, my leg hurts, my neck hurts. And uh, because I'm in pain, I will tolerate those practices mixed with darkness to solve my health problems. Is that not going to the darkness to find the light? Saul did this in uh, 1 Samuel 28, 5 through 16. He needed wisdom as it related to going to war, and he knew what God had said about going to mediums or witches. And he did it anyway. He went to the witch of Endor, and uh, he received a message that because of that he had lost his kingdom and that he was about to die. What did he do? Well, he went to the darkness to find the light. We don't do that. We don't need to do that. Let me give you another one, and uh, this one's going to, Again, be something that's relevant to our body. Sex. I'm talking about married couples here. You go to the world or you look at things in adult books or adult stores, whatever they're called, because you, you believe you have problems with your sex life and you think that those places will enhance that. Is that not going to the darkness to find the light? We've actually had people in this church be disciplined out because of that, because when they went there, there's things on those pages that entice them to other things and they end up in sin. You say, but i got a legitimate problem and I need to deal with my problem. Well, you don't go to the darkness to solve it. 
That's never the solution. Can that really be the solution? God's given us everything we need for life and godliness, including these kinds of issues, which are relevant issues. You say, but I, I can't find the answer. I don't know how to wait upon the Lord. And somebody over here in the darkness is telling me, I can take care of your problems today. And you say, you know, it'll be okay. Satan poses no threat to me. Uh, his devices, it won't get me. I'll know better. I'll look the other way. I'll use those things. You see, that's you believing the lie. Rather than the truth that it conceals, you don't go to the darkness to find the light. When we turn to the world or darkness to solve our problems, we put our eternal state in more danger than we can imagine. Professor of psychology at New York Medical and Practicing Exorcist. I've talked about this individual. That doesn't mean that I endorse this individual. But it's interesting nonetheless uh, the things that he says about uh, the demonic realm and his uh, supposed experience in it. Uh, what makes it interesting is that this individual is a uh, uh, in secular society, he is not a religious person, and yet he is involved in exorcisms because of the things that he has seen. Uh, Dr. Richard Gallagher is his name. He claims that demons view us. He wrote a book called uh, Demonic Foes, if you're interested. He claims that demons, demons view us as stupid apes. That he's heard them say this through the mouths of those that they were possessing. They view us as stupid apes because of how easy it is to expose us to their damning deception. Stupid apes. Are you the stupid ape? Who are you listening to? Are you spying the lie or are you listening to it? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us this time to open your word and I pray that it's done its work. You tell us that your word will not go void, that it always accomplishes something. We pray in this case that what it does is builds up, that it strengthens us rather than judges us. Father, we pray also that if there be anybody here who and hearing what they've heard today has been judged by your word, that they would respond to that in the right way. They would repent and turn from those things. They'd spy the lie, and they'd live for the king. Make it so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.